we often hear statements like, no creed but Christ, no law but love, or something like, doctrine divides but love unites. I have no rule but the Bible itself. And statements like those occur quite frequently when considerations being given to the theme of this address, creeds and confessions. And what I'm trying to do in looking at this matter just now is to respond to the attitudes of those people who say doctrine divides, love unites. And I want to assert the continuing value, the continuing significance of creeds. And we may have time to incorporate just a little at the end about the way in which creeds and confessions can be brought into the present life and witness of the church. But what are we talking about? We say creeds and confessions. And it must be admitted there's no generally agreed definition of what is a creed and what is a confession. Some people use the terms interchangeably, others make a difference. I want to try and make a difference. The, the word creed is derived from the Latin credo, I believe. And it refers to a concise, authoritative statement of core Christian belief. And it's best, I think, to confine the use of the word creed to the doctrinal forms of the early church, forms that gained fairly extensive acceptance. Confession, in its narrower sense, is best reserved for the more extended doctrinal formulations that were produced at the Reformation. And subsequently. So in looking at creeds and confessions, we're looking at statements, some shorter, some longer, that the church has produced over the years, setting out its doctrinal position. But we don't get the full picture unless we begin with the biblical basis. Because in examining creeds, we really have to see that the seedbed is in fact Scripture itself. And it's also useful to realize that it seems to be an inherently Christian activity to formulate creeds and confessions. To some extent, the practice derived uh, from the Jewish background out of which the church emerged. We know that in the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it became very common in Judaism for individuals to affirm their monotheism by reciting the Shema. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And we know from recent discoveries, discoveries in the last 50, 60 years, that the use of the Shema was an integral part of the, the worship of the Qumran community. And it still plays a significant enough role in the worship of the synagogue. But Judaism hasn't advanced beyond that position. 
And as far as I'm aware, neither Islam nor Eastern religions such as Hinduism, Buddhism, Shintoism, they didn't spontaneously develop creedal formulae in the way in which Christianity is done. Yes, you can now get statements of their faith, but they have originated through interaction with Christianity. Historically, it's been within the Christian church that there has been this tremendous propensity to formulate creeds. And that is a reflection of the church's insistence on the importance of sound doctrine as being essential to the faith. But it's not just an ecclesiastical phenomenon. It grew out of the examples and the requirements of Scripture. Jesus himself was perpetuating the already existing practice within Judaism when he called on his disciples to confess him publicly. Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. Everyone therefore who acknowledges me before others, I also will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I also will deny before my Father in heaven. And there we've got the central requirement of any Christian creed. A clear statement of who Christ is, and a personal avowal of relationship with him. And you find throughout the New Testament many individuals, Nathaniel, Martha, Peter, giving public statements, public utterance to their acceptance of Jesus as God's promised Messiah. Indeed, when Paul recalled Jesus' arraignment before the Roman governor, he declared that the Lord in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. 1 Timothy 6.13 And it was the same phrase, the good confession, that Paul employed regarding Timothy in the previous verse. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now those who connect what Paul was talking about there with Timothy's baptism are undoubtedly correct. It was baptism and outward incorporation into the church which formed the the locus for such statements of faith in the Christian community. At the simplest level, the confession, the creed, was just acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord. Because in a Jewish context, that spoke volumes. It was attributing to Jesus nothing less than sovereign deity, which inherently belongs to Yahweh alone. And so in Romans 10, uh, we find Paul saying, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There are many other passages in the epistles that show this confessing with your mouth, this making the good confession, this acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord was an activity in the apostolic church. I might also mention 
uh, the longer Western text of Acts chapter 8. Nowadays, it's generally treated as a later interpolation into the account of the Ethiopian eunuch. But even if one just takes it at that level, it's still a witness to early Christian baptismal practice. You remember the the Ethiopian asked, Oh, what is to prevent my being baptized? And Philip replied, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And the convert confessed, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That is evidence of the practice that was expected and perpetuated in the early church. So, Philip Schaff, who wrote the monumental three-volume work, The Creeds of Christendom, was quite correct when he said, the Christian church has never been without a creed. And that's why 1 Corinthians 15 was read just now. I delivered to you, said Paul, as of first importance, what I also received. And he then presents a formulaic outline of core Christian beliefs, which were already part of a developing Christian tradition of which he'd become an heir as an apostle who was untimely born. You see the same thing in 1 Timothy 3.16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. There's only one substantive challenge that I've come across in relation to that assessment of the New Testament evidence. And that's in terms of Luke chapter 21, verses 12 to 15. You will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. And I've seen some people, come across some people who've argued that that means we shouldn't have fixed sets of words in our minds with which to make a confession of faith in a situation where it's challenged. But our Lord's words there were designed as a word of comfort direction for for time of persecution. He was saying to his disciples, don't worry that you don't have an opportunity to frame an elaborate defense in accordance with the rules of rhetoric to make a big impression when you are brought to before courts of this world. The impression won't be made by human skill. It will be made through divine impact. In the same context of persecution, we have Peter's advice. In your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. 1 Peter 3.15 And being always ready to make a defense 
requires an intelligent and comprehensive understanding of the doctrinal basis of what's involved in a Christian commitment. And the church provided that for early believers through the creeds that were formulated. So, moving into the post-apostolic age. We have evidence of the church employing doctrinal statements of the contents of the faith. A number of different terms are used. The rule of faith, rule of truth. Certain fathers in the West, beginning with Cyprian, uh, used the term symbol in the sense of, of a badge, uh, an instrument of identification to denote the summary articles of faith that differentiated a Christian outlook from that of a pagan or a Jew. And the church grounded these statements in the word of God. Augustine has a sermon on the creed. And he says there, These words which you have heard are in the divine scriptures, scattered up and down. But they have been gathered from there and reduced into one statement, that the memory of slow persons might not be distressed, that every person may be able to say, able to hold what he believes. The truths of Scripture are scattered across its pages, and the church, in its ministry to all within its bounds, gathered them together so that there might be a brief compendium that they would be able to present what it is that they believe. Now, in the work I've just mentioned, Philip Schaff's Creeds of Christendom, he noted that there were three creeds which might be termed ecumenical, in the sense that the church, both in the East and in the West, accepted them. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. <clears throat> And he added to them the Christological statement of the Council of Chalcedon. Uh, these four are the ancient creeds. And they're now being made available uh, on this particular handout. Not in chronological order. I'm going to look at them in chronological order. They were obviously put on that to fit into the page. <clears throat> the Athanasian Creed goes on much longer. I'm not going to be concerned just now with the content and the assertions of these creeds. I want to explore rather why they arose, what motivated them, why did the church develop them. But let's begin just by looking at the, these four creeds in a little bit greater detail. The earliest is undoubtedly the Apostles' Creed. Now, it's not called that because it was composed by the Apostles. But rather, it, the name the Apostles' Creed embodies a claim that it reflects the faith as taught by the Apostles. The origins of the Apostles' Creed are debated still. But it seems fairly well established that it grew out of the rule of faith that was used in Rome as a confession of faith before baptism. 
And that explains the use in it of the singular I. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. And also its triune form, analogous to the baptismal formula of Matthew 28. Some scholars, late 19th century, early 20th century, tried to argue that the Apostles' Creed was a response to heretical beliefs, but that hasn't gained any substantial support. The Apostles' Creed arose out of the life of faith in the church. It was an expression of the commitment that the Christian joyfully acknowledged as his own, her own. This is what we hold to be true. And adopting the creed was to commit oneself to act on the basis that this truth matters. And so often that commitment was a commitment to the point of martyrdom in the early church. So the Apostles' Creed begins early, certainly versions of it back to the 2nd century AD, and developed the form that it now has gradually. The next, chronologically, is the Nicene Creed. And this arose out of tension within the Christian community. The followers of Arius of Alexandria denied the essential eternal sonship of Jesus Christ. They postulated a creaturely Christ. And at Nicaea, the church, with some later modifications um, over the following years, particularly at Constantinople in, in 381, developed the terms of the Apostles' Creed to affirm the co-equality of Christ and the Holy Spirit with the Father. Very God of very God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father. This was in terms of the needs of the church to have an unequivocal testimony to the truth. The Arians were presenting viewpoints which if left unchallenged, unanswered, would have damaged the faith in an incalculable fashion. The crisis required the church to state definitively what it believed regarding Jesus Christ, over against the falsehood that was being promoted. Interestingly, the, the Greek text of the Nicene Creed doesn't begin, I believe, but we believe. The Latin and English traditions usually substitute I believe, but the fact that it did in Greek originally begin we believe shows here the way in which the creed was functioning as a formula of unity within the body of the church. Uh, the Apostles' Creed was very much focused on the individual before baptism. The Nicene Creed was more a collective expression of where we unitedly stand. In chronological sequence, the third of the early creeds is the Chalcedonian definition. 
And again, this arose from the internal needs of the church to clarify and maintain the truth regarding the person of Christ. In 451 BC, uh, this uh, definition was drawn up at an ecumenical council of the church, beginning, we all with one voice confess our Lord Jesus Christ. And it stresses the reality of Christ's deity and humanity. Nicaea was focused very much more on the doctrine of the Trinity, on the fact that the Son was co-equal with the Father within the triune Godhead. At Chalcedon, the focus was more on how can one person be both truly God and truly man? And the council reflected their understanding of Scripture with the declaration that there were two natures in one person and that the characteristics of each nature were preserved without confusion, change, division, or separation. An exposition of fundamental structures of the Christian faith. The Athanasian Creed well, its origins are a bit obscure as well. Uh, it doesn't derive from Athanasius personally. It appeared first in southern France around 490. But it certainly, although it didn't come from Athanasius himself, it certainly upholds and maintains the truths he fought for. And it was aimed at countering modalistic teaching, which said, oh yes, the Son and the Spirit are gods, but of some sort of lesser rank. And that sort of modalistic teaching seemed to have become prevalent. And this Athanasian creed is a vigorous defense of the Trinity and the incarnation of Christ in exact detailed terms. It's also of the early creeds, the, the most polemic in denouncing heretics. And it wasn't really ever recognized by the churches of the East. The Athanasian Creed was very much the Church of the West. So what do we see there? We see there the early church formulating creeds to ensure that the life and witness of the church remained faithful. It wasn't sufficient merely to have the label Christ or Christian. There had to be a grasp of biblical revelation. The church had to strive to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And the creeds form the basis of the early church church's response to the exhortation, stand fast in one spirit with one mind. And so they provided a way in which the Christians could speak the same thing in a united harmony. How can two walk together unless they be agreed? And the creeds showed the basis of that agreement, particularly over against 
false teaching. Paul, an inspired apostle, declared that someone in his own day not only professed to believe the scriptures, but even to preach Christ, and yet they were preaching another gospel. And Paul charged those to whom he was writing to hold such teachers accursed. There are distortions of the truth which are so radical that those who would maintain the true gospel need to identify those distortions and separate from such willful corruption of the truth. And the way in which the church sought to progress in that was to have a written formal creed to which all gave assent. Now, just a little side note. I was supposed to be talking about the early church, but I can't stop. I've got to put in a bit about the reformers as well. The Eastern Church, and to an even greater extent the Roman Church, regarded the creeds as oracles from God. They, were in, they tended to give them the same status as Scripture. At the Reformation, the Reformers accepted the Apostles' Creed and the early creeds, not because they were themselves inspired, but because they agreed with Scripture, the only rule of faith and practice. The older Protestant theology very much um, distinguished the status of the creeds from the status of Scripture. Scripture, the Latin tag they used was, Scripture was a norma normans, a rule that rules. Whereas the creeds were simply norma normata, a rule that is ruled. They made this essential difference. Scripture rules, it sets the norm. The creeds set a norm, but it's by a derived authority they themselves have to conform to Scripture. And the Reformers therefore took on board the teaching of the creeds and because they uh, accorded with Scripture, they were happy, ready, willing, more than willing to endorse them. But at the same time, the church's understanding had progressed. It wasn't simply sufficient at the time of the Reformation to reiterate the truth, which was undoubtedly in the creeds. The church also had to clarify and present a great many matters that had become clear in subsequent centuries. The word confession as such, in the sense of a, a formula of faith, it doesn't appear until 1536 in the English language. And when these confessions of the Reformation Church uh, were formulated, they went beyond the doctrine of the Trinity, they went beyond uh, Christology, they took in matters of soteriology, regeneration, justification, election, the nature of Scripture itself. It was, in fact, the Lutherans that led the way. It was in 1530, in the um, 
German city of Augsburg, that Melanchthon, the, the uh, Lutheran reformer, second only to Luther himself, changed the name of the justification that he'd written for the Lutheran beliefs from that of uh, an, an apology, apologia, uh, to confessio, a confession of faith. Uh, that uh, document, the Augsburg Confession, was uh, the beginning of the process by which uh, so many branches of the Reformed Church, the, the, the Protestant Church, uh, enunciated its belief. Again, these were not designed to go beyond Scripture. They were designed to repeat its message in a form that addressed the contemporary situation of the church. Melanchthon always sought to go back to his sources, uh, always sought to ground his statements in the word of God. And so his Augsburg Confession of Faith of 1530 is the first of several Reformation creeds, but they're much more extensive documents than the earlier um, documents of the church. Well then, where does that put us now? And we have to realise that there are many objections, hesitations, many who feel uncomfortable with creeds and confessions. They have arguments that they present. For instance, the argument that creeds usurp the authority of Scripture. Now, I hope it's clear from what I've just said that neither in the early church nor at the time of the Reformation was there any intention that that should be so. Yes, that sort of thinking did creep in both in the um, Eastern Orthodox Church and in many aspects of Roman Catholicism. But neither the, the Church of the early centuries nor the Church of the Reformation felt that the formulation of statements of belief in any way compromised the authority of Scripture. Indeed, they frequently explicitly denied any compromise. No matter how majestic the language of a creed, no matter how compelling its declarations, it's human, potentially fallible. It has always to be checked and ruled by the word of God. And these confessions are worthy of honour to the degree that they accord with the teachings of the word of God. When I was reading round this subject, I came across the statement that liturgically, Anglicans use the creeds daily, Presbyterians use them infrequently, and Baptists and brethren rarely, if at all. And that made me stop and wonder if I was really a Presbyterian, because I couldn't even claim to use them infrequently. This is, a, what do you do with them? I value creeds and confessions most highly, but personally I, I shy away from incorporating them into worship. I come from a tradition that has not done so. I'm not sure that they are a divinely warranted element of worship. But at a practical level, 
they have a very important role to perform because they set a standard which those who profess to accept the authority and teaching of Scripture should be prepared to acknowledge. They are therefore both setting, i come back to these points, they are both setting a framework for unity within the church and they are providing a basis for education within the church. But they are not intended to usurp the authority of Scripture. Another argument that you come across is that creeds usurp the place of Christ. I'm sure you've heard the slogan, no creed but Christ. And that often appears as an expression of piety. But you have to probe it. Which Christ? Heretics, ancient and modern, have always professed to believe in Christ. But the Christ that they are presenting is not the God-man who is the centre of the historic Christian faith. The creed is a means the church uses to block the inroads of heresy. Now, to say no creed but Christ can be motivated by a number of things. With some, it, I think, is just an elementary misunderstanding of the way church creeds and confessions are meant to work. But I think there are others who, who use that sort of slogan because they actually do have a fairly clear personal view regarding Christ. They have a creed. But they don't want to write it down because they don't want it to be subject to public examination. They don't want it to be scrutinised, criticised, refuted. I'm therefore saying that you find no creed but Christ said both by brethren who need to be shown that creeds don't conflict with scripture or the status of Christ. But you also have to watch because it can be a very convenient slogan for those who want to exempt their personal views regarding Christ from closer examination. And that brings me to a very modern one. Creeds usurp my right of private judgment. We live in a culture where individualism is rampant. And people claim that they don't want anyone else to do their thinking for them. No one's going to tell me what to think. I'll make up my own mind. And in this connection, I'm always reminded of the statement by the economist, John Maynard Keynes. He said, The ideas of economists and political philosophers, both when they're right and when they're wrong, are more powerful than is commonly understood. Indeed, the world is ruled by little else. Practical men who believe themselves to be quite exempt from any intellectual influence are usually the slaves of some defunct economist. <laughs> he was saying, 
when you look at businessmen, they just say, oh, I'm just a plain, ordinary businessman. Don't know anything about your economic theories, your far-flung ideas. I just do things straightforwardly. And he's saying people who say that, without realising it often, are in fact attached to the beliefs and the outlook of some defunct economist. The same thing's true of theologians. The individual who, pl- who says, I'm just a simple believer, is frequently, perhaps unconsciously, endorsing the views that he or she has taken on board from someone else without realising it. And if we play down the collective wisdom of the church over the ages, we leave ourselves wide open to being swept along by the intellectual climate of the day or by the charisma of some specific individual. That's what a cult is. A cult is a religion centred round an individual And in a Christian sense, a Christian cult, an individual who's got his own interpretation of the Bible, his own creed. And if we have no awareness of what the church has stood for doctrinally, we can be swept either into conformity with the thinking of the world of our day or swept off our feet uh, by the, the forceful personality of the one who leads astray. It's not the case that creeds and confessions mean we're letting others do our thinking or our believing for us. It's rather that they're conferring on us a tremendous privilege. When we've got a problem, when we need to think through a matter clearly, it's very often the course of wisdom to to ask a friend, to talk it through with a friend. The Christian isn't limited in this process of consultation to those whom he can presently access. We can converse with the church of the past. It's a joy and a privilege to discover how fellow believers have articulated their faith in different situations and times and to find how they have viewed and presented the person and work of the Saviour. Oh, we have there a tremendous privilege in conversing with the past. And we have also got a privilege in voluntarily giving our assent to that which unites Christians across the centuries. There is a terrific difference between the voluntary declaration of religious belief by an individual and the idea of imposing a set of beliefs on someone, particularly by the authority of the state. For a Christian to voluntarily declare adherence to a set of beliefs is an act of liberty. For the state to impose that is a gross persecuting abuse of power. But there should be no hesitation on the part of the Christian to say, I know where I am and I'm prepared to take a stand. 
I'm prepared to do so jointly with others of like mind. And here is our commonly agreed formulation. B.H. Carroll, who founded the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in the States, in his exposition of Ephesians 4, said, The modern cry, less creed and more liberty, is a degeneration from the vertebrate to the jellyfish and means less unity and less morality and more heresy. Definitive truth does not create heresy, it only exposes and corrects. Shut off the creed and the Christian world will fill up with heresy, unsuspected and uncorrected, but nonetheless deadly. Another objection that you find is that these creeds are time-bound. They're answering yesterday's questions. You're looking back thousands of years. Undoubtedly they were drafted in specific circumstances. But I do doubt if one reconvened the council at Chalcedon or reconvened the divines who attended the Westminster Assembly... I doubt if they would produce today documents that are substantially different from those that we have handed down to us. Oh, the language may be different. I would hope they would have included additional areas of doctrine uh, which they would be in a position to make clear because of the subsequent experience and reflection of the church. But they wouldn't have gone back on what they have already said. Yes, their message was produced in a specific culture, It inevitably bears the marks of that culture, but that doesn't mean that the underlying message has changed. If we are committed to the idea that truth is unchanging, and if we acknowledge that Scripture teaches a system of values and beliefs, then the only question we've left to ask is, does this creed conform to that system of values and beliefs that Scripture has set forth? Their creeds continue to be of relevance because they are dealing with such fundamental, basic matters. The nature of God, the person of Christ. There are others who say, but the church's reflection is human. It can never be final. It's only relative. And these documents are just provisional, non-binding documents that we can modify, improve on. And this is especially true of the modern idea of the subjectivity of truth. After the Enlightenment, truth became so very much focused on the individual. Truth wasn't a standard, it was something that depended very much on personal perception. Modern rejection of objective truth leads to a devaluation of creeds that seek to articulate such truth. Oh, you can get truth stated in a cold and lifeless form. Uh, That's not what we're talking about. Christianity and Christian truth should so grip the heart of the individual that it leads to a depth of commitment that it leads to a 
an ever-increasing wonder at the nature of what is there. It's wrong to say these are only relative documents embedded in their own day and age. They are documents relating to the truth that reflect the cumulative mind of the church. That show the Holy Spirit has been working over the ages and bring us back to the uniqueness of divine revelation complete in God's infallible self-disclosure in Scripture and in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. So then, what are their ongoing value? I was looking at the internet, came across some very valuable articles by Ernest Reisinger on creeds, confessions and articles of faith. And one of his articles is entitled, Are Creeds and Confessions Divisive? And in bold letters he says, yes, they divide truth from error. They divide true teachers from false teachers. And false teachers have not become any the less common over the centuries. Whenever the church takes its position over against the world, over against heretical movements, over against false teaching, it has the right and the necessity of formulating the truth of God or using the creeds that present the truth of God as a test of orthodoxy. The church has to clearly state what is true doctrine if it is to be an effective witness in this world. It was Martin Luther who argued it's the duty of every Christian to espouse the cause of the faith, to understand and defend it, and to denounce every error. And the creeds have a valuable function to perform in that regard in terms of didactic function, as a teaching instrument. They are carefully weighed precisely expressed, they encourage clarity of belief. There is nothing that I find more perplexing than reading some modern theologians where after four or five pages you blink twice and say, has this man said anything yet? They seem to, much error is promoted through fine-sounding words which are used to obscure rather than clarify the truth. The creeds have this advantage of encouraging clarity of belief. For centuries, the early church used the catechism as an interrogative method of instruction. When Augustine gave his famous sermon on the creeds, he recognized the importance of, of catechizing especially the young, but also those new in the faith, asking questions to elicit answers, to ensure that the truth had been understood. And the Reformation was particularly given to catechizing. The Westminster Assembly actually introduced a, a fairly major innovation in catechizing. Because when they drew up the shorter catechism and the larger catechism, they departed 
from the ancient pattern. In the ancient pattern of asking questions and answers, the, the words of the answer required you to know what the question was. Whereas at Westminster, they made it a point to ensure that the answer itself was a totally contained statement. The question elicited the answer, but the answer could stand on its own because they felt that that was a way of individuals grasping the truth very much better. And this is a problem nowadays. It's not just a matter of instructing the young. As the church reaches out into a post-Christian world, we're increasingly contacting adults with little or no Christian memory from childhood. They've no knowledge or understanding of Christianity at all. It's different from a past generation where you were contacting people who had been some church connection in their youth and had left it, had gone away, and you can appeal to some measure of residual knowledge. Now we're in a situation of dealing with a generation that has no residual knowledge. And there is need for Christian instruction, just as there was in the early centuries. There are those who try to fill the gap with various instructional courses, but there is a place there for a definitive creedal foundation to what is being said. And especially that's true in the light of the modern approach to life, a sort of smorgasbord approach, you know. You can have a little bit of this and a little bit of that and make up your fancy as you pick up doctrines here and ideas there. Creeds and confessions have the value of being synthesis, bringing things together and saying, look, this is a package. You're not at liberty to take a little bit of there and a little bit of that and make your own mix. Scriptural truth is a unified system. And the creed, the confession, uh, brings that before us and does so in a way that counters modern intellectual arrogance. You'll notice it is one thing to say, I believe that there is a God. And it's another thing to say, I believe in God the Father Almighty. I believe that there is a God exalts the human mind, puts the human mind in, on the seat of judgment. The creeds are deliberately framed where I believe in is engendering an attitude of submission. It is an attitude of recognition of what is there and coming before the supreme uncreated Lord and acknowledging him as the one to be trusted and adored. So that the creeds of the early church have still a vital role to play in that they present truth in an organized fashion. They present truth in a way in which it can be presented to a generation, to a nation, to a culture that has forgotten about God and to do so in a way that leaves the individual with awe and reverence before the God of whom they're speaking.
And of course, they're not essentially divisive. Oh yes, they divide truth from error. But in dividing truth from error, they provide a rallying point for those who are in one accord. They enable Christians to stand together, knowing that they have a common perception, knowing that there is a a unity that they share with one another. To say that churches are confessionally united doesn't mean that everyone has to have exactly the same opinions, but it does mean that there is a joint commitment to what has been stated. This isn't against liberty. This is a way of strengthening the church. And it is at that level that creeds and confessions continue to play a vital role in the maintenance of the the health and spirituality of the church. But ultimately, creeds turn outwards. The creed sets out a statement for all to hear. It is the church unashamedly avowing this is the truth. This is the message which we proclaim, we confess our faith in the presence of many witnesses. And it is only as the church can do so unitedly that its mission has power, has vigour, has divine blessing. Because the truth set forth in the creed on the basis of the Bible provides the platform on which all can move and stand and be prepared to be counted in an age of diverse and clamorous opinion. Thank you. Thank you very much, John. Very very model of clarity yourself in speaking to us, which is why we have you back so often. Oh, well, they... And, uh, I'm beginning to feel buttered up. For something. <laughs> <laughs> when somebody says things like that, you begin to say, what's, this? what's the agenda? I'm not really hearing. Yeah. Well, we've, we've had a bonus today. Anyway, thank you for, for coming yes. out. Now, um, a number of you may have uh, questions. I know Reg always has questions. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, others as well may have questions or points they want to raise. So it's a good opportunity now. We've got a few minutes. I was asked by a Christian brother only this morning, uh, did I say the creeds? Mm-hmm. I had to think a moment. Actually, I said, well, partially. But he, his comment was, he said, do people who, who say the creeds regularly, does it imply when they, they say them that they are saved? Or is this a matter of intellectual affirmation? Well, it's, you, you can apply the same thing to uh, those who recite verses of Scripture, those who read the Bible. The, the, the action in and of itself doesn't say anything about uh, a person's, uh, the, the living nature of a person's faith. Um, I think what it does say, if they, if they are reciting the creed and understanding what they say, 
they certainly will have a clearer grasp of the truth of the nature of Christ, the nature of the Trinity, than many others. It's remarkable how many people who will call themselves Christians manage to survive with the lowest possible level of knowledge that they can get away with. Uh, we, we live in an age, they talk about information overload, it hasn't impacted the church at all. Information overload is not something that the church is suffering from. Uh, there is a value in having these things. I often, I don't know if I did with you, but I often commend to my students, read the larger catechism as a piece of piety, devotion, inspiration, uh, it's superb. Uh, and especially if you find that you're, well, I, I'm particularly thinking of theological students, and you feel you're getting into a rut in public prayer, read the larger catechism. It's tremendous what is stated there. We have such a treasure from the past. Now, you can have a treasure from the past and you can put it on a shelf, you can admire it, and it doesn't make any difference to you. You know, some people lock their jewelry away in safes. They've got it, but nobody ever sees it. On the other hand, having these treasures, being familiar with them, is something that the Spirit can use for our eternal good both to build up the believer and to bring those who are in darkness in, into light. But merely saying them, reciting them, is of no more significance than having a rosary and going through all the beads. Following on from that, I mean, one of the greatest blessings of recent years has been to go through the, the, the confession of both catechism and the directory of worship, just a paragraph a day, because they're all wonderful in their expression of truth and building up faith. But thinking of the... Following on that, that question, there's the opening of the Athanasian Creed, which always strikes me as being slightly problematic, and I wonder how you would see this. Whosoever will be saved before all things, it is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith, which faith, except everyone do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt, he shall perish everlastingly. I mean, is that an overstatement? I thought perhaps you would agree. Yes, <laughs> yes um, I, I, I didn't quite see the full sh schedule for, for the... No, no, no I've, got, I've got the full thing here. But um, I, I, people shy away from the Athanasian Creed nowadays. Uh, I'm going to be talking about Chalcedon. I think others have been talking about other things. Um... It, it strikes me, I mean, the last clause as well, this is the Catholic faith which except a man believe faithfully he cannot be saved. Um, I would interpret that as trying to say, and I suspect this is me reinterpreting it, that um, provided one was not contradicting what was there, acting, I think that it was a situation of tension they were acting against those who were denying these truths, and I think it is badly expressed. 
I wouldn't be prepared uh, to say that everyone to be saved has to understand every item of the Athanasian Creed. But I would be extremely worried about someone claiming to believe the contrary of any of those statements. It's a bit like justification by faith. You don't have to do, uh, define it doctrinally, but you must believe in, in Christ alone in the way that, that that doctrine encourages you to. Yes. I, I think the, 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 yes, the, the beginning and the end there are overstatements. May, may I ch- rise to Colin's challenge? <laughs> <laughs> I thought you just heard. <laughs> no, 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 it wasn't. No, it was something that I came with because... Which I, it's the application of it, reading John Kennedy's The Fathers, The, the Ministers of Russia, and something that, that he says um, about the, um, uh, the, the, um, I think I've lost the page, sorry, about the, the use of, of confessions. Confessions to them, he means to the liberals, the moderates, mm-hmm. confessions to them are troublesome things, not because they interpose between them and Scripture, but because they show when they depart from it. And from my experience in the Church of England, um, two examples of, of that, the Church of England Evangelical Council about 30 years ago wanted to change its basis of faith, removing, removing the uh, reference to the 39 Articles, and uh, in, about 19, in the early 1970s, the doctrine of subscription assent to the 39 Articles was changed. The Articles were kept, but they no longer had to be believed in their, in their plain meaning. It's like the Declarity Act, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, see, it seems to me that the, the, the fact today, has, certainly in the Church of England, the Conservative Evangelicals were unwilling to revise the Articles... Not because they were, that it wasn't necessary to, it is for modern issues, but because uh, there wasn't the belief and the theology around to do it properly and biblically. Yes. What we tend to forget is the extent to which matters, say at the time Westminster Confession was drafted, the number of brilliant thinkers who had gone through these areas and it wasn't as if they met for the first time to discuss these things. This was the product of really going back uh, over a century of thought in the church. This was the the crystallisation of it. Nowadays, the church is poverty-stricken intellectually. Uh, There is nothing inherently wrong with saying that creeds and confessions can be revised, provided you are, you can have a linguistic revision, you can have revision by addition. My big worry is revision by subtraction. Uh, there are perhaps one or two places where one, you know, there might be something. We've just looked at the beginning and end of the Athanasian Creed. Uh, there are one or two statements, but I'm afraid that if one sat down to do this, it wouldn't be one or two statements that are perhaps questionable that would be on the agenda. It is the essence of the truth. And I can see why then people say, well, let's keep with what we've got. Here's an historic document. It may have certain flaws. Uh, the language may be 
not, I mean, they're, they're talking about the Catholic faith. Now, I mean, to the ordinary person nowadays, that means Roman Catholicism. It doesn't mean anything like what it meant when it was originally written. But to start changing, no, I think we're, you need to have a time of religious life of considerable blessing spiritually to even dare to think of revising uh, because that, that's not the world we're living in just now. And then there is the question, it applies to the creed, say, David Jenkins, Bishop of Durham, he said, I believe in the resurrection, but it was a different resurrection. Yes, well, you see, that's the same thing as, oh, no creed but Christ. I believe in Christ. But you've got to find out, what do you mean by that? It's all very well taking the tag and saying, you know, I'm a Christian. Uh, and you find that, well, Arius would have said quite happily, I'm a Christian. I believe in Christ. Oh, and who is he? Oh, he's a sort of demigod who's halfway between man and God uh, and sort of mediates uh, as a sort of semi-divine figure. You know, you, you can have statements that's... You see, that, that's why you, the church has had to go beyond scripture. You can have statements that sound scripture. I'm, there's a story back in my mind. And I think it's at the drafting of the Nicene Creed. And the Orthodox party was bringing out of Scripture all sorts of phrases uh, that described Christ and his status and his being. And they, 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 they could see the hearing saying, hmm, we can take that one, we can take that one. But every time they, they were interpreting it according to their own viewpoint. And therefore they were forced, the Orthodox party were forced to bring in language like um, of the one nature, homoousios, absolutely to pin down uh, what it was that was being said. So, yes, you, you can get words, you, you can get uh, no creed but Christ, you can get I believe in the incarnation, and I'll redefine it in such a way that it bears no relation uh, to what it's uh, traditionally meant. Well, that's undoubtedly true. May I also say, there's not many people south of the border who challenge me with Kennedy's fathers in Rothschild. <laughs> I, I, I hand it to you. <laughs> Any other questions or, or comments? May I ask a quick Go one? On. Well, I hope it's quick. Um, there is a, a modern uh, theologian who has written a systematic theology who, who I, from what I understand, is denying the, um, that Christ was eternally begotten. I don't know whether you're familiar with that. And therefore, then I didn't know whether you would want to speak on, on a personal... On no, I, 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 I... And therefore denying the Nicene Creed... Yeah, I don't quite know who you're referring to. There's, there's more than one candidate comes to um, There's two problems there. Uh, there have been quite conservative theologians who have wondered about the propriety of the phrase eternally begotten. Uh, we're trying to find words that relate to the inner nature of God, and it's extremely difficult because we have got no analogies. But th there may very well be some who say that the same truth can be expressed more appropriately using different words. You seem to be saying there are, also, there are those who, who just wish to deny that truth. 
Well, that, that's Arianism. You know, that, that, that goes way back. There's nothing new in heresy. It just goes round in circles and comes with perhaps a different philosophy, different uh, outer garment, but at heart it's the same. Arius said, oh no, um, God is... Uh, the, God is the Father, basically, uh, and the Son uh, came into being at some particular point, was not eternally begotten. So that sort of idea that's now being found in many, um, it's just a recycling. It's very modern. It's recycling ancient heresy. Rather than throwing it out, uh, put it into a different format and bring it forward again. Um, there are many who, whose ideas on this. Uh, and, uh, well, it's not so much on the Trinity. You must have covered the Trinity somewhere. Some other? Previous years. Yeah. Oh, no, you didn't do Nicene. Uh, no, oh. we did. Oh, well, we're, I think you gave me a lot of ideas for the five lectures, John. <laughs> yes, yes, well. <laughs> that wasn't on it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, when I speak about Chalcedon, it's much more. Um, I'll be saying something about that, but it's not so much in terms of the Trinity; it's in terms of the person of Christ. Can I just ask something about whether you think that the creeds are um, intrinsically corporate, or are they primarily for? Individual believers to assess themselves, and am I, and assess whether you know whether they're orthodox, in the way we would put it, or is there something that is intrinsically orthodox about them? I know you mentioned that the Nicene Creed was initially we, we yes, and, and Charles Dickens we, mm-hmm. and if that's the case, can I ask practically how does that manifest itself? Well, the point I was trying to make was that in terms of the where they originated. Uh, the Apostles' Creed definitely came out of an individual statement. But obviously, as soon as more than one individual has used the same statement, uh, th- there is a harmony, uh, there is a unity there. When it was internal tension in the church, we believe tended very much to be the language that was adopted. The creeds cover both. Uh, the... Uh, there, there is an invitation to the individual to join in with the voice of the church. I personally uh, find that corporate jointness valuable because that's one. Of, I think it's one of the dangers of modern evangelicalism that it tends to be so individualistic. It's, it's I believe in. Uh, was there not a series of books I believe in this that uh, we believe in would have given that church dimension and there's something about the the fellowship of believers jointly saying something that all are agreed in that has tremendous spiritual strength uh, and it, it is that that's needed I think in terms of our witness in, in the modern world so yes when you say, we believe, you're also saying, I believe. I suppose there's the danger if you say, we believe, that you can detach yourself a bit from it. Um, 
better not think of examples. Uh, but, you know, you, the we believe should be both myself as an individual and the fellowship as a whole. Uh, and I think that is a very valuable element uh, in uh, a corporate statement.